Today's episode is brought to you by Jorvik Viking Center, an immersive historical experience located in York, UK. In just a few days, I will be touring Jorvik Viking Center and attending the annual Jorvik Viking Festival, which features merchants, scholars, and events dedicated to the Viking Age and the rich history of Viking Age York. Please be sure to follow the link in the description below for more information on the annual Jorvik Viking Festival. I certainly hope to see you there. Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today I'm joined by Professor James Montgomery, Sir Thomas Adams Professor of Arabic at Cambridge University. Professor Montgomery has served as a lecturer at Glasgow University and has held senior lectureships at both Oslo and Leeds as well. He has done fascinating work in both television and radio, having been featured in the BBC three-part series called Vikings with Neil Oliver and on Melvin Bragg's In Our Time. BBC Radio 4 broadcast, just to name two. Uh, Professor Montgomery, thank you so much for joining me today. No, thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to talk to you. It's my pleasure. So I'm very excited to really get into our conversation today. We're going to be talking about Iban Fadlan, who is uh, someone who I don't know nearly enough about as I should. And I know I've gotten a few requests from listeners to cover him on our show. But uh, very basically, for those who aren't familiar, who was Ibn Fadlan? Ibn Fadlan, to be honest, we don't really know anything about him at all, beyond the fact that uh, in the year 921, he took part in an embassy from Baghdad to the upper reaches of the Volga um, and acted in that embassy uh, as its sort of master of ceremonies. He was in charge of reading out letters, official correspondence, and making sure that the gifts designated for the appropriate personages were actually given to the right people. But beyond his name, Ahmed ibn Fadlan, and the fact that uh, uh, he was a member of the household of the caliph, we really, and, and the text that he left of, of, of the mission, we really don't know anything at all. He's a complete mystery. That's interesting. So as far as the text that we do have, um, sort of where do we get this idea of this man called Ibn Fadlan from? Are there certain, you know, manuscripts, texts that tell of his life? Uh, so he left a written account uh, of this embassy. Uh, it's told in the first person. So he's the narrator. Uh, and it follows the steps uh, of the mission from uh, Baghdad to the Volga. It exists in two basic formats. Uh, it was quoted by a later geographer, uh, a man called Yakut, uh, and um, uh, he, in his geographical dictionary, under a certain number of the rubrics of place names and so on, quoted passages from Ibn Fadlan, not without some criticism. But then in 1923, in um, the mosque library in Mashhad in 
Iran. Uh, a diplomat scholar, uh, interesting character called uh, Zaki Vlidi Togan, uh, discovered a manuscript from the 13th century in which um, uh, a more complete version of Ibn Fadlan's text uh, was preserved. But even the text that is preserved in the manuscript uh, is still incomplete. So we know him through the manuscript that's kept in the mosque library in, in, in Mashhad in Iran, uh, and we know him through the quotations in a later geographical dictionary. Mm, I see, I see. So within sort of the text that we have about him, what, what does that look like? Is it a, a personal diary that he kept? Is it sort of a memoir of his, um, certainly his journeys, but um, also his interactions with the Norse? And perhaps that is one of the things that is most uh, fantasized and most mysterious about him. Yeah, so the text itself um, uh, comes, as I say, it's a, it, it's a first-person narrative, um, and uh, it's very detailed on uh, places where the mission stopped over and the functionaries and important um, local uh, warlords and rulers that the mission had to deal with. Uh, and it's basically told uh, as a, a travelogue, um, uh, the story begins with the arrival of a letter from the king of the Volga Bulgarians who had converted to Islam. And the king asks uh, the caliph for uh, uh, help in um, teaching his people uh, how to worship properly, teaching them the rules of Islam, providing them with um, finances to build a mosque and also to build a fort because the king fears uh, that he is uh, a great risk from uh, unspecified uh, uh, enemies in, in his territory. So in response to this, the court of Baghdad decides to send uh, a mission, and uh, Ibn Fadlan is designated as one of the members of, of the mission. And he tells the story. There's a lot of attention paid to dates. Um, he's very scrupulous in recording dates. He's very scrupulous in recording how long they spent in various places. Uh, and so effectively... Uh, it is the story of a journey from Baghdad across uh, into Iraq, into Iran, uh, up uh, north uh, past the Aral Sea, uh, crossing numerous uh, very dangerous rivers to finally reaching the destination of the embassy uh, at the bend in the river Volga where the river Kama flows into it. Uh, so it's very much a travelogue in that respect. Hmm. So now, uh, when talking about the Norse, Iban would have encountered the Volga Vikings, would have been come to notice the Volga Vikings, if I'm correct. Is that right? Uh, well, he meets people um, who are called the Rus, uh, and that's Ibn Fadlan's own name for them. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion and debate over uh, the last um, century and a half or so about whether these Rus were... Slavic, a Slavic people, or whether they were Vikings, um, or who exactly these people um, are, it remains something of a mystery. Uh, and I think uh, the mystery has yet to be solved. Uh, but they are popularly and now almost widely accepted uh, to be Norsemen of some description. Uh, so the term Volga Vikings has uh, emerged and, 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 and been applied uh, to them, but that is, in my opinion, far from uh, a definite um, or a straightforward identification. Yeah, that makes sense. I understand. So, you know, of these people, perhaps, you know, the, the Rus, um, how does Ibn describe them? What does he describe them as being 
like? And are there any specific scenes that he tells us about uh, that he, you know, encounters these um, these Rus? Yeah, so Ibn Fadlan's travel book, um, uh, perhaps one of the longest passages is, in fact, a very detailed description of this unusual people. And it's important to understand the context within the uh, travelogue itself when he introduces the Rus, because he has reached Volga, Bulgaria. He's um, uh, presented the letters to the king of the, the Volga Bulgarians. Um, the mission reached Volga, Bulgaria without the money that the king was expecting. Um, and as a consequence, the king effectively keeps them under arrest. So he imprisons the uh, embassy and doesn't allow them to leave his territory. And whilst Ibn Fadlan was in this territory, he was able uh, to uh, travel around with the king as he went around the various parts uh, of his um, uh, of his territory. Uh, and he observes a number of um, uh, wonders or, or, or miraculous things or unusual occurrences. And one of the unusual occurrences, one of the wonders that Ibn Fadlan describes, is in fact his encounter with the Rus. Uh, so they already, for Ibn Fadlan, um, uh, exist in a very nebulous uh, uh, position within his uh, imagination. Uh, and to give you another example of some of the things that he also describes uh, as uh, wonders or miracles that he saw in, in, in Bulgar territory, he observes uh, what he thinks to be a giant tree that turns out to move because it's an enormous snake. Uh, he describes um, uh, what we think was a sighting of the Aurora Borealis, but which he describes in terms of warring factions of, of jinn, of, of genies, of demons fighting in the sky. So in this almost phantasmagorical um, uh, uh, section of Ibn Fadlan's travelogue, the highlight is the encounter with the Rus. Um, but that's not to say that his uh, description isn't Anyway, imaginary. Um, so if I read that a little bit, uh, he, he introduces them so, like this. I also saw the Rusia. They had come to trade and had disembarked at the Ital River. That's the Arabic term for the Volga. I have never seen bodies as nearly perfect as theirs. As tall as palm trees, fair and reddish, they wear neither tunics nor caftans. Every man wears a cloak with which he covers half of his body and leaves one arm uncovered. They carry swords, daggers, and axes, and always have them to hand. They use Frankie's swords with broad, ridged blades. They are dark from the tips of their toes right up to their necks, trees, pictures, and the like. And then he goes on to describe the women who accompany the Rousseau. Um, he describes them with a meticulous attention to detail. But even in those few lines that I've quoted to you, there are so many um, uh, strange uh, um, uh, features that we still can't um, uh, quite explain. Uh, so a Northern European origin might be uh, suggested by the fact that they are fair and reddish, uh, but there's some issue over the exact type of swords that they have with them. Some people have said that the description of them being dark from the tips of their toes right up to their necks, trees, pictures and the like, it's normally explained as tattoos. And yet tattoos weren't known amongst the Vikings, so possibly it's some plant dye, a wood or some description that they're using. Uh, so the more, uh, the point I'm making is that the more attention to detail Ibn Fadlan 
furnishes us with, the more questions he raises in the, the process. And he goes on from describing the appearance of the rose to the sort of things, to how they lived, uh, to how they behaved, to their how they washed or um, uh, their worship of uh, small figurines placed in front of large blocks of wood set in the ground before which um, a, a rose merchant would um, prostrate himself and pray. Um, they describe how they treat, Ibn Fadlan describes how they treat um, uh, members of their community who fall ill. Um, and so he he's very interested in uh, daily life, in uh, washing rituals, in religious uh, practices. Um, and um, But for every, I think for every detail that, that he furnishes us with, uh, we could have uh, seven, eight, nine, ten different questions that might uh, arise in our mind as a result of it. That's that's truly fascinating. Wow. So perhaps I think a good way to understand uh, the Viking Age generally is also looking at other cultures that existed during the time. So what did the broad Arab culture um, you know, that Ibn Fadlan would have been a part of look like during the Viking Age? Just sort of a brief overview. Okay, so the caliphal court would have been highly literate. It would have been highly sophisticated, extremely wealthy. Um, uh, it had luxury goods from all over the world arrive um, uh, via the Tigris and Euphrates. Um, and um, the caliphal palace complexes in Baghdad were both enormous um, and, and truly. Um, uh, astonishing. So the caliph at the time was a man called Al-Muqtadir, um, and uh, one of his um, obsessions was um, mechanical toys. Uh, and he had um, uh, mechanical devices such as cavalrymen who charged each other, um, and he kept them in a, a special sort of display room. He probably had a zoo. Uh, so this is uh, a civilization which is not only at the height of its um, intellectual and, and literary um, powers, but actually in real terms, uh, uh, the major power uh, in the world at the, the time. Uh, but Ibn Fadlan operates east of Baghdad, uh, and so he enters what we now think of as Iran and uh, many of the... Um, uh, republics uh, that are part of the Russian Federation. And there, uh, things may have been a little bit different. Um, so in July in 921, the mission arrives uh, at the court in Bukhara, which was uh, another enormously sophisticated and wealthy trade center, effectively uh, almost an independent state within the caliphate, um, controlling the trade routes with the north. And one of the keys that the, behind the, the importance of the mission uh, is the silver trade, uh, because um, uh, a lot of um, Islamic silver was being taken north and finally making its way up th across the Baltic into Scandinavia, uh, but also slaves and furs uh, and weapons. And one of the members of the... Um, uh, of the embassy is a man called Takin the Turk. Uh, and he was a slave soldier 
who was an expert on the the Turkic uh, peoples of the steppe, uh, but he had at one point been involved in the arms trade with the northern tribes. Uh, so the world that uh, once Ibn Fadlan left Bukhara and moved north, um, up just sort of south of the Aral Sea, that effectively was where Islamic influence um, uh, stopped, and it was a series of uh, Turkic tribes uh, who occupied the territories between uh, Bukhara and um, uh, Volga, Bulgaria. Uh, so for the world that Ibn Fadlan came from, this was a world of enormous uh, wealth, sophistication, uh, cultural achievement, um, and uh, uh, his almost rude awakening in Volga, Bulgaria, uh, is uh, part of the reason that he seems to be so disoriented uh, when not only is he defeated in a legal argument by the king of the Volga Bulgarians, but then he is kept uh, hostage until uh, the money for building the fort and the, the mosque uh, would turn up. So, you know, you mentioned this immense, these immense amounts of wealth that were concentrated all over the caliphate and in, in, in the Middle East. Now, um, would that have been primarily generated through, through trade? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, I'm not in any way an expert on numismatics, but it seems that um, uh, around Bukhara uh, and that part of um, the uh, caliphate, there were a number of extremely rich uh, silver mines, uh, and the uh, minting of uh, silver coins uh, took place at an enormous rate. I mean, the amount of, if we were to judge by the amount of coins that uh, Islamic coins that were discovered in Scandinavia alone as a fraction, uh, we're talking about millions of coins that, that, that were um, minted, uh, silver coins. And this seems to be the main uh, uh, driver of all the activity uh, between uh, Bukhara uh, in, um, uh, and the peoples of the north. And as you read Ibn Fadlan's travelogue, you keep coming up uh, with uh, an, an acknowledgement of the size of the trade. So even allowing for Ibn Fadlan's um, uh, exaggeration, he mentions that he traveled north in a caravan of 5,000 men. Uh, for for making the arduous crossing just after the winter thaw from uh, uh, a place called Khorazm uh, across the Ustyurt Plateau, the plateau that separates the Caspian Sea and the Aral Sea. Uh, so if there are 5,000, even allowing for some uh, uh, exaggeration, I mean, okay, say he exaggerates uh, that the caravan is only 500 people, that's still a big caravan to be making a, a, a a crossing like the one that Ibn Fadlan's describing. So there's a huge volume of trade that is taking place. Um, and it looks as if um, uh, in return for silver coins, the um, uh, Muslim traders were receiving furs, they were receiving weapons, uh, and they were receiving slaves. Interesting. So that, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Now, um, sort of, you know, Perhaps not a question about Ibn Fadlan per se, but uh, one thing that has always struck me as very interesting, you know, talking about when uh, the cultures of the, the Norse uh, collided with the cultures of the Middle East. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the mosque in, I believe it's Constantinople, what would have formerly been the Haggai Sophia, there is uh, 
a runic inscription, you know, chiseled onto the the balcony there, if I'm correct. Could you tell us a little bit about that and sort of what that might have? I know that's a very mysterious thing, but sort of what that might tell us about the Norse in the Middle East? Yeah, so uh, in modern Istanbul, there is um, uh, uh, a couple of runic uh, inscriptions on one of the balconies in the um, uh, in the Hagia Sophia um, uh, former church, now the mosque. Uh, that is because uh, the Byzantine emperors uh, had an elite uh, guard called the Varangian Guard. Uh, and um, effectively what they would use as their elite soldiers were, were, were Norsemen, uh, Vikings, possibly uh, uh, Swedish, possibly Norwegian. But um, uh, this group of elite mercenaries who were the personal guard of the Byzantine emperors were known as the Varangian Guard. Uh, and the runic inscription is effectively, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, a name. Um, uh, identifying one member uh, of the Varangian Guard. The Varangian, the word Varangian is um, uh, an old uh, term for uh, a Scandinavian uh, Norse warrior. Now, one of the things that I think that allows us to to do is perhaps to venture a theory about the identity of the Rus that Ibn Fadlan encounters, because uh, my suspicion. Uh, is that the people that Ibn Fadlan meets, based on his account and on uh, similar accounts in other geographers, are in fact the equivalent of the Varangian Guard, but for a group of people called the Khazar, uh, who were the dominant uh, uh, force uh, um, in the Volga to the Caspian, uh, with their capital um, uh, in the Volga Delta as it flows uh, into the Caspian Sea. So I think the people that Ibn Fadlan encounters uh, are some form of um, elite uh, uh, mercenary force um, uh, who are in the service of the Khazar um, uh, in, uh, uh, on the Volga. And the Khazar were so powerful and so important. It was one of the few uh, uh, peoples that the Muslims were not able to defeat and I believe at one point the Byzantine emperor used to keep a vacant throne for the Khaqan, the ruler of the Khazar, uh, to whom uh, uh, there had been marriage ties between the royal families. So the, the Khazar are the dominant uh, people in that region. Uh, they uh, were hugely powerful, militarily extremely capable uh, and had managed to resist uh, attacks by both uh, the Byzantines and by the Muslim armies. Uh, and they effectively uh, dominated and controlled the whole steppe area from the Caspian Sea uh, up to the north. And so uh, when I put the evidence that is available together and try to work out um, a plausible identity, for the Rus that Ibn Fadlan encounters, my best guess is that they are mercenaries, similar to the Varangian Garden in Constantinople, uh, but in the employ of the, the Khazar Khaqan, the ruler, uh, and it's this people that Ibn Fadlan encounters in his enforced stay as a prisoner of the Volga Bulgarians. And what ethnicity would these, these people have been? The Khazar? Yeah. 
Yeah, they're Turkic people um, uh, with the great sort of um, uh, Hunnic migrations um, uh, in the 5th century uh, from east to west. So all the peoples, whether it's the Bulgar, the Khazar, the Huz, uh, they're all effectively uh, Turkic in origin. Interesting. No, that that's fascinating. Well, Professor Montgomery, thank you so much for coming on my show today. It's been an absolute delight speaking with you. I've certainly learned a great deal about Ibn Fadlan and really the interactions between the Arab and uh, North worlds during the time of the Viking Age. So thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, no, thank you for uh, having me on your show. And um, I can only encourage your readers to seek out Ibn Fadlan's um, travelogue because it is a completely fascinating uh, insight into that part of the world in the early 10th century. <laughs> 